0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning into the podcast from the Connecticut Certification Board. As you know, the CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to protect the public by enhancing recovery-oriented workforce capacity. On behalf of the Board of Directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to our podcast, Scope of Practice. When exercise is used in substance use recovery, the person receives a number of benefits, including assistance in overcoming physical and emotional withdrawal symptoms, helping the body to overcome damage that substance use may have caused, and creating endorphins. Endorphins are the hormones that reduce the body's perception of pain and can trigger a positive feeling in the body. Interestingly, endorphins interact with the body's natural opioid receptors to produce that analgesic effect. In short, when we hear people talk about a runner's high or an exercise high, it is a very real phenomenon. There is an evidence base behind this as well. In some controlled studies with rats, research found that regular swimming reduced voluntary morphine consumption in opioid-dependent animals, and access to an exercise wheel reduced the self-administration of cocaine to animals dependent on that drug. Certainly much more promising than that is a Danish study of 38 individuals with various specific substance use disorders who were assigned to exercise groups three times per week for a period of two months to six months. Of that 38, 20 participants completed the study and showed things like higher oxygen intake, higher self-reported quality of life, an increased level of energy, a better body image, and reduced drug use. Certainly 38, I mean, 20 out of 38 is a higher percentage than we're used to seeing in a lot of SUD studies, so that kind of throws the idea that our folks that we work with are not motivated, throws that right out the window. Um, Overall, in that group, five remained abstinent in the long term. Ten reported a reduction in their overall use, four reported no change, and sadly, one did die due to an overdose. We have to remember that the point of the study was not to induce abstinence, was to see a change in behavior, and when you look at 15 out of the 20 that completed, that's a significant amount of change in behavior. Researchers concluded that physical exercise really can provide important support in the treatment of SUDs, and they determined that the main problem is to maintain that change in behavior and maintain the peer group group influence in the long term. As we talk about our guests today, from high school dropout to teacher, from tall, awkward girl to elite athlete in three sports, and from struggling with substance use to advocate for the recovery community, Lisa Nichols has a broad range of experiences. She currently resides in upstate New York, where she is a mother to one human and two dogs. She's trying to grow a garden. She works as an author, a poetry community president, and expansion manager for Recovery Fitness a sober, active community. Welcome to the show, Lisa.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me here. And thanks for putting together that research. I might as well throw it out right in the beginning um, that my background is not in fitness. Um, I've certainly engaged in a lot of it, but I didn't study it in college. You know, as it mentioned, the bio as a teacher. So I can say all of the things that the research found is true from experience, in my own life and other humans, but I haven't heard those concrete scientific examples. So that was really cool, thank you.
0: The study is, it's really about 10 years old and I'd like to go much more recent than that, but there really hasn't been a lot uh, of other research on that. Um, Some of our listeners may know some more and when they hear this, they can let me know if they know of any. Um, But I did want to point it out because there seems to be an ongoing argument between uh, evidence-based practices and practice-based evidence. Now, I can report on the research, which is evidence-based. You're doing it in the reverse order. Your, your practice shows that this is accurate as well. It's practice-based evidence. Um, one absolutely. thing I want to start with, go, oh, go ahead.
1: Well, I was going to say, absolutely. And that kind of goes right into the organization I work for, Recovery Fitness they began with a really grassroots development, not based on research, just based on two humans sitting in an apartment in the middle of winter up here in Rochester, saying, "Man, if we don't get outside and do something, we're going to end up using." Um, and a whole history started there. So,
0: well, that leads me into my first question: What can you tell us about Rock Recovery Fitness? How long has it been in business?
1: Um, Five years. So that story I just shared is from our co-founders, a woman by the name of Yana Casper and a gentleman by the name of Sean Smith. They were the ones living in Rochester. They decided, hey, we got to get out of the house. We have to do something. The best part is Yana had no background in outdoor things, no hiking, definitely not in the winter, but she was just kind of at her wits end as she describes it. And it's like, okay, you think it'll work, Sean, take me. And he's kind of the opposite. He um, has a history in the military, ran boot camps for veterans, if that was his life. Um, so they went out, posted on Facebook, and lo and behold, a couple strangers showed up. And when they got talking to him, some of those humans were in recovery themselves. So they thought, hey, that was pretty cool. Um, and they kept posting, we're gonna hike here, We're going to work out here in the snow. And then when summer came and they developed a group of like-minded humans who were focused on recovery, outdoor activities, and getting together. So from there, three years into the journey, they got a wonderful gift from an angel in the community who prefers to remain anonymous. And it's a old firehouse. It's antique. So it has the fire pole the wonderful architecture, the wood lockers that the firemen would use. And that's become a community center. So they have a big gym space and uh, a pool table, foosball, an area to hang out. And from there, we've just grown. I come into this story about that time I started volunteering. And then a year into volunteering, they got another grant for expanding. So my official title began with, trying to branch out into other areas of New York and expand the program.
0: And it has expanded from Rochester. You have a couple other sites? Yeah. We
1: we started uh, January of this year. We officially started a chapter in what we call the Southern Tier. Um, So instead of the city of Rochester, south from there, there's a very rural area. And that was interesting because substance use is worldwide it doesn't matter what demographic you come from, what your neighborhood looks like, but reaching the community looks vastly different in the rural areas than it does in the, in the city. So that was a challenge. Um, and from there, we started the seed of a community in Watertown, so um, further north. Where There's some other, it's a mix of like urban and rural. Um, so that one's just brand new.
0: Well, and the expansion I think is is outstanding, and it also shows that this the model can work in different parts and with different communities. Like you said, substance abuse has, knows no boundaries, or, or or racial or color or gender lines. And I, the fact that you can can put a program like this, a recovery community organization like this, in different areas, I think shows the strength of the model and that it works really well. You're meeting the people from the community. In their community and we know how difficult that can be for for many folks to get out of their community Um, you mentioned like-minded people how many of these like-minded folks have you served since the inception of the organization
1: yeah it's it's a question when I say the answer it still baffles me because it's phenomenal but it's also hard to track because in the beginning it was grassroots you know we weren't seeking income They weren't writing grants, and really the only reason to track the data is for, one, proving it's reproducible, and two, to get grant funding, because we keep everything free for our members, which is a rule that's really important to us. But we've served just shy of 4,000 members. In
0: five years. That's Mm -hmm. incredible. You weren't kidding. That's incredible. And the fact that you're able to do it uh, at no cost to the people who, who utilize it, to the people in the community, I, I think that's an amazing thing as well. It's something that many of us would like to do when we offer services, but we know the realities is sometimes we just can't do that. Um, and I feel you pain having written grants in the past uh, that they like data, they like data, they like data. Um, so you have to start tracking some of that stuff. Um, are there any requirements for the individuals in the community to become members of?
1: Yeah, so our only real requirement is a minimum of 48 consecutive hours of sobriety. And we do that on a trust system. We don't ask, we don't obviously test. Because one of the things, I don't know exactly how to put it into words. I guess maybe if I give a a narrative example, um, we have a member who's now part of our staff and when you listen to him share his story, he came there as a volunteer through Drug Court Pathway. And he said the moment they gave him the keys to the building without asking any questions, he felt this overwhelming sense of gratitude and responsibility. And, you know, when you, I believe in rules and standards and requirements, but when you push them on people and then you also follow up, It sets up a different dynamic than saying, hey, here's our our membership rule. We trust you to follow it because we respect you and we believe in you, and we're going to leave it there.
0: And I think in cases like that, when I was in social work school, I I was a group major, and you focus on kind of not the pressure, but the group culture that everybody holds each other accountable, even if it's silently. Hey, if you're going to be here when I'm here, I expect the same from you that I'm expected to give. So you don't have to, you're in position where you don't have to enforce rules because everybody kind of knows that this is the culture and and this is the way it is. And if there's anything I know about folks um, in recovery, no matter how long they've been in recovery, um, they're not afraid to call somebody out who they think is, is, you know, not doing what they're supposed to. Um, And so that dynamic of community is important as well. Do you do follow-up um, interviews? Do you do evalu- evaluations of the programs for um, the folks? Do they give you feedback?
1: So that's something new. Uh, I can't really speak to exactly when we implemented it, but I mean, I guess about a year and a half ago, we created a three-month follow-up survey. Um, because, again, we are grassroots, so we want to serve the community. But the way we do that is we make sure we're part of the community. We're a very flat organization. If you were to just show up, other than someone leading the way, you would never be able to tell who's a staff member, who's a community member, who's a volunteer. You know, that removal of a power differential is extremely important. And I think that's worth noting because we don't have to always put out a survey to know what our people want. We are our people and we're with our people. They tell us, you know, that communication you just brought up. Um, But as far as grants and having fidelity, it is important. So we did implement um, a three-month survey, but it's hard to get it out there because we're an active community. We're based on fitness, and getting people to fill out surveys isn't always our
0: strength. One of the things that through your daily communication with people, what are some of the things that they say to you about the organization and about what they're doing?
1: It's a great question because a lot of people are curious about recovery and ask a lot of questions, but are fearful of engaging with us, like going on that first hike or walking through the doors of the gym. And what we can never explain what it is. You really have to be there because between the lines, there's this overwhelming sense of belonging. Which relates to your question, because people don't say, oh, I love this about recovery so much. But between the lines of what they say, I hear the message of, when I'm in this community, I don't feel shame. When I'm in this community, I feel like my recovery is something to be proud of and not something I, I don't want people to know about me. Um, and we don't actually run like discussions about recovery during our events we don't focus on the idea we start with the code of conduct saying hey we're representatives of the recovery community when we're in public so do no harm leave it better than it was when you got here and you know other specific rules based on where we are um so it's kind of just like an interwoven thread but not a direct discussion at any point so anyways long story short the the removal of stigma, the celebration, of recovery—they um, really enjoy the fellowship and the doing, like not just talking, but living life and doing things.
0: One of the things that I find really appealing, based on what you just said, is how things are interwoven. Recovery is assumed; it's just part of a life, and you—it—it it helps people get. Um, you know, past that struggle of being in recovery and, like you said, the stigma and the, the, you know, judging eyes from others. They're just living life. They happen to be individuals representing the recovery community and being in recovery, but they're not out there carrying signs about that specifically. They're showing we're part of this community and we're positive parts of this community and having fun doing it. And I'm sure a lot of the conversations are about how tired they are <laughs> and they want to slow down or speed up or do something. Else. Yeah. It just kind of goes with it.
1: The, when I first, I came from a CrossFit coaching background. Um, so I got my certification there, coached CrossFit and then volunteered at Rock Humphrey. And I used to always come across this idea and I'll try to communicate it in the best way possible. But a lot of people who have been through active addiction, Have those, like, do everything to the max personalities, which can be a benefit when you're doing CrossFit workouts. Pushing yourself to the max is something you've done in another area. Just transfer it over to these burpees or these pull-ups, and you'll see results real quick.
0: When you – we'll stick with the folks that you serve and the folks that come every day or or, or when they do – what are some of the positive effects, other than the ones you just mentioned, about like a sense of community that that they report? Do they report like, "Oh, I feel stronger" and things like that?
1: Yeah, and particularly with female athletes, that sense of empowerment. Um, not to say that we don't see it with males as well, but I think the first time a female picks up a barbell is always a beautiful experience. Um, but in general, when you start to see those physical changes you feel empowered because you had to do the work to get them. Um, So we see that as a positive effect. There's also just that endorphin rush you get at the end of a workout. Um, And the whole idea of shared suffering, especially if it's a particularly difficult workout, everybody's like, oh man, what about this part or those pull-ups? And sharing their war stories in a positive way.
0: It's cool. Yeah, and it's... I always like the endorphin rush at the end much more than I like doing.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I'll do because it's necessary, um, and I know it's the right thing to do. But there are sometimes doing some cardio where things are not not really that much fun or difficult exercises. But I really like feeling better when I leave, so it makes it all worth it. A little bit of suffering for a lot of gain. Mm-hmm. Um, are there exercises or there activities that you do that that Uh, the folks that come like more than others, like what's their favorite thing to do?
1: Yeah. So let me paint a picture of uh, what our services look like. So we have the main outreach center in Rochester and a majority of that is open gym. So a lot of people come there either to use the cardio equipment or to do bodybuilding type lifting. Then there's some classes. So there's boxing, um, like high intensity interval training Boot camp style stuff. So that's like our, our weekly programming. Then we have our outdoor programming. So that'd be trail runs, um, 5K preparation. Um, we're coming up in September. We have our annual fundraiser. So we prepare for that with the community. And then we have hikes all over. Um, upstate New York has just beautiful locations. Mm-hmm. But we also try to reach out to third-party organizations. So those seem to be our favorites. The real unique stuff, like a kayaking trip on Genesee River, or um, we go camping for New Year's Eve every year in the Adirondacks and do a winter hike. Um, but I would say those special excursions, and then those outdoor boot camps—that's where it all started, and everyone just loves them. But
0: there's a lot of laughing and things through the pain when when they're doing, you know, a lot of the exercises. Um, one of the things that, that I find when it comes to recovery, when it comes to performance in any way, is, is drive. Um, and recently on this podcast, I've spoken with a former NFL player named Tony Mandarich, um, who was the number two pick overall in a draft and was considered um, a bust overall. Uh, through some substance issues and things. And in 1993, the French Open's double champion, Murphy Jensen, he was one of a brother and brother team, the Jensen brothers, um, and they talked about their struggles with substance use disorders and the recovery that followed. One thing that was common for them in their athletic success, they had significant amount of, and their recovery success was that drive and that motivation when they were able to take what they use to be successful athletically and say, hey, I need to put the same effort into my recovery, things really changed for them as part of their recovery process. Just a quick question, because a lot of the people that we serve, uh, that, that listen to us, are providers. They're clinicians, they're recovery coaches, et cetera. How can our listeners, those folks, help the people that they serve Uh, increase their motivation to address issues of physical fitness we know physically what substances can do to the body and we see it how do we help motivate someone to look at that that aspect of their lives
1: oh that's the golden question (laughs) um motivation is super tricky because uh even a highly motivated person isn't always motivated. Um, so to, to put that into example, I myself am, am an athlete. I love the process of training. It's probably my favorite part. Competing a different flavor of fun, but I really like the process. But there are days when I'm like, ugh, it's too whatever. hot. I don't feel good. I'm tired. I'm busy. I, on those days, I'm not motivated. So I like to remind people that motivation cannot be your only carrot dangling in front of you. You have to find something that gets you to do it on the days you're not motivated. And for me, that's consistency. So, the same as I do in recovery start small, have a process, and set goals. So, whether I'm motivated or not, if I'm starting small, maybe walking every day, the some days I'm gonna feel highly motivated. Other days, I'm gonna be like, oh, it's raining, I don't wanna walk. But I made that commitment. So, mm-hmm. I'm just gonna commit to consistency and not rely solely on my motivation.
0: And I talk about motivation because it's a very important part of recovery, and we the the kind of conventional wisdom about it is that the folks that we work, folks with substance use disorder histories, aren't motivated, and I know that to be the complete opposite because to survive in that kind of lifestyle requires an incredible amount of motivation to do the things you need to do to survive. So the motivation is there. it's we just have to recognize that it's often situational, yeah. Right. How do we recognize, how do we, we're, it's not that somebody isn't motivated, they're lazy, they're this. They are just not motivated to do what we think they should do or, or in this situation. Uh, and I think that's helpful when we can tell that to people because it, it provides a sense of self-worth as well. You're saying, Look, I know how hard it was for you to live that life. You told me how hard it was, but you did it. Let's yeah. take some of that and see if we can apply it here.
1: And I love how you went deeper into that because what you just did is highlight that innate stigma, right? When I say lack of motivation, it goes right to laziness or, you know, a lack of willingness. So you're absolutely correct. And I think recovery itself is a great process for any human endeavor. So, yeah, I love how you related it to the journey of physical fitness. Um, so I would say to reframe the answer that I gave, really reminding them there's a reason you want to get physically fit. Let's focus on that and then work backwards to set small goals and develop a process that, that you could be successful and consistent with to get there.
0: Right. And reaching those small goals are successes along the way. Yeah. Like, oh, this is something that I know I can do in the next three months, one month, two months, that getting there, I can show up today when I really don't want to, that's a success. And we have to remember that. Um, One thing I noticed is that you guys have a YouTube channel um, to, that you share exercise, you do some virtual stuff. Um, What kind of things do you have on the channel?
1: A whole bunch of beautiful nonsense. we started the YouTube channel this March. Uh, as a result of the pandemic, we closed our gym early before our governor mandated it, because our safety, security, and health of our members is of utmost importance. Um, but we don't wanna leave our community without access. So we really had to put our heads together and decide, You know what can a group of inspired humans who are used to interacting face-to-face and coaching very physical classes what can we do to keep the community alive um so I guess that's important for me to say because if anyone goes to the YouTube channel we are coaches not YouTube people um, but we try to do our best to make everything accessible so we have fitness classes um mostly high interval training high-intensity interval training you could do it at home um, But then we thought, you know, a whole other piece of our programming that we don't do directly is that wellness outside of physical activity. So we started offering some things that we thought would help for folks staying home during the pandemic. Um, There's a wonderful volunteer, Brian. He did a daily meditation every day for 90 days. Those are on there. There are recovery talks where staff members share inspiring stories and readings um, we interview other local community providers and talk about those tricky discussions like affected family members, how to have difficult conversations. What does loss and grief look like in the community? Um, we have a creative writing channel. We have running tips. I think that's all of it. A little bit of everything, really.
0: Well, I, I got to admit, I cheated. I look at as- some. <laughs> at some of the videos yesterday when I was researching the site for recovery fitness. Um, and a very recent one that you posted brought up something that that study that I mentioned earlier had brought up, body image. And the fact that you were talking about body f- image is really important um, for all. And again, we mentioned, especially for your female participants, um, because so many things are, are uh, they receive so many negative messages about things. Um, Can you talk about some of the issues of body image and relate them to, to what you do?
1: Yeah, it's really tricky because we don't often have candid conversations about that stuff, but in recovery, I've learned that vulnerability is a keystone of healing and growth. Um, And that's something we, our organization offers to, you know, everybody who's there owns their stories and their truth. And, We're open in a positive way to invite other people to feel safe being open. Um, But when it comes to body issues specifically, it's really a human issue. Everyone in some way, shape, or form struggles with something. Um, Brene Brown kind of talks about this in her work, that even those who have never even bordered a substance use disorder have a habit of numbing out you know, when you feel shame, you numb, that's a very human response. So body image is just one of those things we could numb out from Um, our population. It could be with substance, but you see it everywhere with TV or scrolling through social media or, you know, eating or not eating really. So we think of that SAMHSA definition of recovery, you know, that it's a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness live a self-directed life, and strive to reach their full potential. You know, so if you start there and recognize it's a human issue and then open the door to talk about body image, as soon as you shine some light on that shame, it dissipates.
0: And I think that when you talk about body image and we look at that, we have to be clear on what we're talking about. Even if somebody makes no changes to their physical self, we're talking about the level of comfort, with that body that they have. Um, and I think it's a little more accepting in our society. We see things like um, plus-size models, women who are who are not the, the personification of what's expected, the Barbie, but who are beautiful and look fantastic in these clothes. And they're saying, I accept that I'm a larger, I'm a plus-size person, I'm okay with that. Um, and I think that's, what's important, right? It's getting ourselves to be comfortable with, with what we present, um, because we're our biggest critics.
1: Yeah. And that goes back to one of the things we discussed earlier, that sense of empowerment, whether you're male or female, when you're working out, even if the results don't change your body from an image standpoint, you know, it's not about what you actually look like. It's what you feel about what you look like. When I go to the gym and I have trouble picking up a, a, you know, fifty-five pound barbell, but then three months later I pick it up and I'm like, "Whoa, that was a lot easier." It doesn't matter as much what I look like because I'm feeling empowered by what I'm able to do.
0: And I think that's common. I know that when I was regularly uh, doing cardio every day and and working out with weights. And my doctor says, you need to drop your weight. And I said, I'm dropping my fat content. Muscle weighs more. As I'm building muscle, it's not going to affect, you know, it, it's going to make the numbers that you're presenting to me ridiculous. Um, because I can't, if I lose weight, I'm going to lose everything. It was just that, that based on, you know, their numbers, a person this tall should weigh so much. And like, well, if you're working out regularly, you're not going to weigh that much. You're going to be heavier. Um, But it's part of your body that's working.
1: I think Um, That's a great metaphor, too, because, you know, if the number on the scale dictates success, that takes away the fact that muscle weighs more than fat, right? So we should have a different success indicator. And I think in substance use disorder and recovery in general, At least in my experience as a human in recovery, what I considered success, my definition, was vastly different when I was in active use than it is now. Um, So shifting your success markers is very important in all areas.
0: And and that's not an easy thing to do because we ingrain ourselves with what other people think success is. We don't trust our own opinions on things. Um, When you're told you're wrong all the time, it's hard to do that. Um. So, learn teaching somebody to set their own goals and to set their own uh, determination for success is a really important part of of anything that that we choose to do. Uh, you also said something re- very interesting about that, um, and that was that you were wearing unmatched socks. Wait, no, wait. That's that's not what you. Well, you did say that. But that's not what I meant. I mean that change comes from a feeling of discomfort. And I think that that's important because it's, it's, it's accurate and I've heard it in different. I've heard it. We used to say, I I worked with offenders um, and I'd get a lot of, yeah, I'm going to do that. Yeah, I'm going to do that. But I would say, Hey, I don't think you're going to change because you hear the thunder. I think you're going to change because you feel the lightning. (laughs) Um, And that's when we're just, when we're uncomfortable with something, we have that choice to seek to change it. If something's working for us, why would we change it, right? If it's comfortable. Um, how can we get past that that feeling of discomfort and use that as fuel, as motivation to change? Yeah. Any tips?
1: That's a great point because, you know, the way we move people through those stages, stages of change mm-hmm. is really reflecting back to them their own discomfort, you know, and sometimes people go through that process on their own without a professional walking alongside them because yeah, discomfort leads to change. If I'm comfortable, why change? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, So I would say the same things that work for clinicians and professionals in moving people through those stages in the recovery process are the same skills you use for increasing your physical health. You know, so what does that look like? Motivational interviewing, mm-hmm. um, coming to the table with no agenda. You know, if I'm like, oh, I'm meeting with so and so today and he needs to lose 10 pounds, that's going to change my conversation versus I'm meeting with so and so today and I'm working with him on his journey, period. Mm-hmm. Um, so that relates to the other specific advice, and that's understanding whoever you're talking to already has all of the answers they just might be buried under that sustained talk or their own answers might be buried in their daily routines and habits are pummeling over what they really want and know is best for them. Um, so I would say from my perspective, our job is to say, Oh, I hear you talking about, you know, body image or being unhappy with the way you feel physically. And, you know, maybe you're tired all of the time or, you know, you're having trouble carrying your laundry basket up the stairs and then asking them questions and reflecting and affirming until the human comes to their own conclusion.
0: Yeah, it's just something that change occurs naturally. And the stages of change are accurate. And if you look at pre-contemplation, that's where someone doesn't know they're, you know, may not know that they're experiencing discomfort for whatever reason, or they they won't admit it to themselves. And that's really admitting it to yourself is important. Several, about three years ago, three and a half years ago, I was in the hospital with pancreatitis and I had some complications and I was in a coma for about 17 days. When I, when I got discharged from the hospital, um, even after doing a week of, of physical rehab, I still couldn't get up the stairs to my house without stopping halfway through and catching my breath and things like that and letting my legs rest. And I think just getting to the next step every day or without stopping was an incredible success for me to get me where I wanted. I had to let go of my frustration with not being able to, uh, because I can be an all or nothing kind of person. <laughs> uh, and Accepting that I couldn't do that. And okay, well, I can get better every day. Um, or I would go up, I would walk the steps two or three times a day with support just to make sure I could do it. So it was small success. And it, it, it really, um, uh, Recognizing that it was it was discomfort and it was there for a reason, uh, I didn't need to know the reason immediately. I just needed to deal with it and move move forward. That's kind of a, a simpler way to put it, and certainly not uh, the same as the discomfort that that the individuals we work with feel. Uh, but the process is the same. Um, for someone just starting out with with a physical fitness routine. Um, certainly after speaking to their physician, always oh, we, we know that their the role of their physician is really important to make sure they don't have something going on where they'll injure themselves or create a much worse situation. Um, but what are some of your favorite exercises for just starting out? You're not going to start somebody out in CrossFit, a strong, heavy CrossFit process.
1: Well, I mean, CrossFit just means mixing
0: I mobile. should say intense.
1: Yeah. yeah but, uh, you know, it goes back to something you actually already mentioned, this idea of movement and muscle. So the more muscle you have on your body, the more calories you're going to burn throughout your day. You know, so what can you do to build muscle? You can do a static hold, you know, where you're just in one position that's safe and works for your body and hold it a little bit longer each day. But the second part is movement. And humans vastly underestimate the value of walking. You know, I think, Most people go to, oh, I want to get in shape. I better run. You can't go from not running at all to, I'm going to do a 5K. You should start with walking. And if I walk, well, I'm horrible at math, but if I walk a portion of three miles (laughs) every day for the entire week, I'm going to hit that 5K mark in a week. Versus if I haven't been running and I go try to run a 5K, I could hurt my joints. I'm going to get frustrated because it's, you know, I'm setting a bar that I don't need to. It's way above where I'm at at that time. Um, So I would say walking every single day is a great place to start. And if you really want to work out, burpees. Everybody's favorite.
0: <laughs> yeah, and not mine. Thanks.
1: <laughs> that was me attempting sarcasm. But they work. But they yeah. work. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> So start out slow, talk to your physician, start out slow, have reasonable goals, use resources. One of the things that you mentioned when you talk about a 5k is there are variations on couch to 5k that yeah. are excellent and help people move forward. Or I have a, a friend that what they do is when they're after a period of inactivity and they want to start doing something, they'll walk for two minutes, run for 30 seconds or a minute and try to repeat that. And if it's too much to run you know, for for a minute, they'll go 30 seconds or 15 seconds. But adjust it to just. Um, and for them, it's an issue of muscle memory and, and getting the body used to running again. Um, but I think that's muscle memory is another thing that comes out for our folks that they that they don't necessarily expect. Right when you do the same things over and over again. It, the process of it becomes easier. When you're doing curls or, in your case, the clean and jerk, Right? when you're doing those things, the more you do it, the better your, your muscles get trained to do that. So it becomes much more of an, of, a, uh, of an action that requires less thought, and you can focus on the weight. And So I think that that's another thing that can benefit. Mo- when you walk and you get your joints moving, your body responds well to that. Yeah.
1: another thing that I think is really important um so I've been coaching I've been coaching fitness of some sort for eight years but before that I also coached high school track um and I've been an athlete since I was 12 and a, a thing a problem I see a lot is focusing on the goal because even when you hit that goal It's immediately like what next and I don't know the answer to this but I feel in my experience and in my bones what to strive for is to focus on a love of the lifestyle or the process so yeah if I do you know an hour of conditioning and an hour of weightlifting every day I might be able to compete at this level but if I don't enjoy it as soon as I reach that goal I might stop you know Whereas if you choose something that is fun, you get satisfaction out of it, you understand there are going to be times it's not fun, then it's going to be so much easier to stick with it. So it's like focus on the process, not the goal, which brings me back to our community. You know, people aren't coming to recovery hikes to become world-class mountain climbers. They're coming there because they absolutely love being outside. They love being with other humans who are working on their personal growth. But if if they were motivated to come there just for winning a trophy or, you know, doing X competition, the vibe would be different. So I think it's really important to remember goals are wonderful. They carry us along, but make sure you you love the process so that you can do it your whole life.
0: That's really important. And I'm glad that you said that. If you don't love it, don't do it. Find something that you do love. Um, In the brief time that, that the, we've been introduced to each other and kind of been communicating about some of the projects we're sharing and things. Something that jumps out to me uh, is that you are one of the most positive people that I have uh, and upbeat people that I've met. And when I talk to people that we share in common, they say the same thing. Um, How do you stay positive? And are the endorphins from your own exercise a contributing factor in that?
1: So well, the first part of the question, how do I stay positive? I've always been enthusiastic. Um, I remember as a small child, I'd wake up and be bouncing around the house. My parents would be like, go to bed until we have coffee or go outside or we can't hear you. Um, so it's not always welcome. So I'm glad that you enjoy it. But I would also add to that my enthusiasm is with a in the sense of curiosity, which got me into a heck of a lot of trouble. Because um, when I pushed my enthusiasm into, you know, my my use or my drinking or causing trouble, adrenaline is also something you can be addicted to. Yep. Um, so for me, that was a thing that put me in risky situations, like breaking bones and danger. But I've learned how to use my enthusiasm for good. Um, a thing I say to my athletes, joking around, is like, "Use your superpowers for good." But what I mean is the same. Character traits that lead to addiction, you know, can also be a boon to success. You know, I'll just speak for myself. Obsessive thinking Mm -hmm. got me in trouble in addiction. It's brought me to the elite level of Olympic weightlifting because I actually practice where I put my feet on the floor for hours. (laughs) Um, You know, so stuff like that. And then the second part of your question is: Is my exercise a contributing factor? One hundred percent. Um, I suffered from depression before I got into a fitness routine. And it wasn't just the exercise, also food. I've learned that there are certain foods that just weigh me down emotionally. Um, once I cut them out of my diet and put them back in, I was able to learn that connection really quickly. So 100%.
0: Yeah, well, The This does help. One of the things that I did when I was running track is I would spend time, hours, it seemed like, to get comfortable. Getting in the blocks to run. And what that became was I developed a routine and it became a strength because it took me longer to get comfortable in the blocks than the other competitors. And it made them crazy. It some of them that I wasn't just set and ready to go. But they give you a reasonable amount of time. Um, and I realized that it became an emotional advantage in the race for me because they were jumping, jump, chopping at the pit, and I was just getting comfortable. Um, so I, I, that's pretty good, you know. And you are very positive, and and I think it's contagious. The first email I get from you says "stay awesome," and uh, I made a joke about that to you. But that, I mean, that makes people feel good, um, and I appreciate it. One final question for me, and it's really broadly based. Can you talk about fitness itself as a pathway to recovery?
1: Yeah, I think this is where my own personal journey is a good starting point. So I had no desire to get into recovery. I actually didn't even realize how my drinking was impacting my life whatsoever. I just knew I wanted to compete in CrossFit and that required more training. And it was really, really difficult to train with a hangover. So I had a very superficial motivation. I just wanted to win and look cool and be super strong. So I stopped drinking and... About two years later, in addition to my positivity, i'm also a little stubborn. Um, I thought, you know what? life is so much better without alcohol <laughs> all of a sudden i'm a a lot less depressed. you know I can't tell you specifically what percentage of that was removal of alcohol in addition of a fitness routine. but you know I've been an athlete my whole life, so I'm going to say it's mostly the removal of a substance and I, I started to reflect on all of the ways financially, emotionally, my relationships, definitely my athleticism, my, um, how I felt about myself as a mother, my work environment, everything just kind of shifted. And I think that's important because particularly if you're working with humans in that pre-contemplative stage, it's sometimes hard to have empathy when someone wants, doesn't want to quit But they have to or you know various other examples of that maybe they kind of want to quit drinking but they're still using another substance just remember if someone gets into it as a superficial motivator it doesn't mean that once their head clears up they're not going to change what they think and feel about themselves about their own possibilities um so for me I think that's important, but um, it started superficial, back to the fitness as a pathway to recovery. I just needed to be healthier so I could work out. Then down the line, um, I come from a family that struggles with substance use. Um, my dad is still in active addiction, and I heard an ad on the radio one time for this organization called Recovery, who had like self-defense classes and outdoor hikes, which was right up his alley, and At this time, I'm maybe 34, 35 years old, and my dad has never talked to me about his use. So I call him, I tell him about this commercial, and he says, maybe I'll check it out. And for me, that, like, just unlocked something in my heart. Like, wow, he's, in a way, indirectly admitting that he struggles with substance use. Um... So he started going to classes and telling me about them, and that was a way for us to connect because fitness was huge to me. So it wasn't just my own recovery. It was a way for me to connect with another person in my life. So then I, that's how I ended up volunteering there. So the other part of fitness is a pathway. It's not just your own recovery. It's connecting with other people. But I was also able to volunteer, and that service work was life-changing for me to feel a sense of community with like-minded people and to give back what was so freely given to me. So funny bit though, when I started volunteering, I realized my dad had never attended a class. Uh, It was just something he told me to kind of get me off his back, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But that didn't stop. And you know what? The next year, he started leading hikes with me. Um, So he did eventually get involved. So I think that's important too. You know, I mentioned the superficial motivator, knowing that if somebody starts off and they're inconsistent, you never know what seeds you're planting that will show up later. Right. And uh, the last thing I'll say, I mean, I could literally talk an hour about this, but fitness feels a little safer. So some people are really uncomfortable with the spotlight on them and sitting and talking one on one. If I go to a fitness class, we're moving, we're not necessarily sitting and talking. Wait, I lied. There's a fourth. (laughs) The other thing I want to say is, you know, when you're talking about healing and recovery, there's a lot of coping strategies because a, a lot of addiction is numbing out or, you know, a coping strategy that's not really going to serve you in the long run. Instead of just talking about them, when you're in a workout, you get to practice them in a safe environment. So what I mean is, for me... I would drink if I felt like embarrassed, you know, that would cover that up. Another coping strategy for being embarrassed could be just being vulnerable and being honest about that feeling, right? It's really hard for me to do in some settings, but if I'm in a workout and I'm feeling embarrassed, it's really easy for me to say, oh my gosh, did you guys just see me trip trying to do that burpee? Um, so it's just fitness is a very natural way to practice those coping and relational skills.
0: Yeah, I think ultimately, anyone involved in any fitness program or doing anything is going to have these little hiccups where they trip or they do something. And just accepting it um, helps someone deal with it much more effectively. There's been some research about parents who, when their child falls down, if the one that, you know, if they panic when the, the child goes down, that child learns that all these little things are crises and they can't deal with them. When the child falls on their rear end and everyone goes uh oh whoops or whatever the child learns that it's just part of, of going on and i use a lot of self-effacing humor to to it's self-protection to because if i can say it nobody else can hurt me with it right um, But you talked about kind of that that external you know or superficial motivation there actually is more research that shows that extrinsic motivation can be just as strong as the intrinsic, the internal. So people that are forced to go to treatment, go to treatment or go to jail are just as successful who people of as people who enter treatment of their own volition. We recognize that sometimes it has to be internalized. Um but the extrinsic can work. You know, the 12 steps use that in terms of fake it till you make it. Show up, show up, show up. Um, The more you go, even if it's just the routine, you're safe and you can get something from it. Uh, And I think that that's important. So for people, if you have to do something, do it. Um, Because you're going to get good at it. it, At some point, it's going to become something that you, possibly something that you enjoy and you you become really good at. Um, And you talked about your stubbornness. Yeah, I know that. I got that Irish stubbornness that I just can't. Uh, that's there. Um, would you mind if our listeners had questions or comments and they wanted to reach out to you? No, I wouldn't mind at all. What's the best way to reach you?
1: Yeah. So the best way to reach me would be email. It's Lisa at dot So that's R O C O V E R Y. But if listeners are looking for more general information, our Facebook and our website have everything. Um, we put articles there, pictures from our events, um, links to all of our videos.
0: And so they could google and find the, the YouTube video page and I think there's a link to that also on your website, which if yeah. I if I remember is www.recoveryfitness.org. Correct. And your email is lisa at rockcoveryfitness.org.
1: Yes. Great. Um, and then the last thing I would say is if you, if somebody wants to think about starting their own sober, active community, we do have a short kind of how-to guide with the lessons that we've learned over the years. Um, So they could email me for that, too. Oh,
0: great. Um, well, that's going to do it for our episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Lisa for joining us. And and for all of the work that she does, not only to improve the lives of specific individuals, but also to improve the field on a much larger scale, and as well as improve her community. We here at the Connecticut Certification Board certainly appreciate her, and we appreciate everyone who's listening. And don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast application. Until next time, everybody.